Good evening, everyone. Excited, blessed, happy. Cannot express enough the gratitude that I have for your presence here at this time. Obviously, you've chosen God as a priority in this hour, or you would not be here. I'm thankful for that, thankful for you, thankful for all of your souls, and for the good worship that we've had up until this point together. I'm going to open up my Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to join me there, that's where we're going to be finding the springboard for our study this afternoon in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 through verse 10. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 through verse 10. And tonight, I want to talk about the grace that God has given us. Just getting straight to the point. Um, earlier at the nursing home service that we had at 1.30, uh, we sang Amazing Grace. And, and I feel like that, uh, amongst a number of other songs and hymns that we sing, you know, we kind of take them for granted because, you know, these are staples. We... We, we sing the words over and over, and we've heard them, and we know them like the back of our hand. But for some reason today, I guess because I've you know been studying through and, and looking at this concept of grace, it just kind of hit me different. It was it was I, I was kind of choking back a little bit of tears during the song. And man, it's so beautiful and it's amazing that we have grace that comes from God, and grace is something that we have that I'm, I'm pretty sure most everybody can just recognize when grace is given. It, it, it's like a gift. It's so when you're given given something that you didn't work for, that you didn't earn, and, and and that comes in two capacities. It comes in blessing and it comes in mercy, right? Blessing is when, let's say, you you receive something again, uh, and you didn't necessarily like pay for it. Blessing is when your friend offers you, you know, I'll I'll pay your food I'll pay your food at this restaurant. And then mercy is the same kind of thing, but a little bit different. You know, maybe you step on somebody's shoes moving leaving the movie theater like a stranger, and they just don't say nothing to you about it. You say, I'm sorry, and they forgive you right away. That's, that's kind of, that's mercy. Both, both are grace, right? Uh, blessings when the sun comes out nice and shiny, right? When you're going outside for a walk, and, and every breath we take is a blessing like that. Uh, again, mercy is, you know, when you walk into your, your boss's office at work, and you're for sure that you're going to receive the pink slip, and, and they just kind of give you a little slap on the wrist and let you go. Those things, we recognize that, and we know that, and we, we can see grace when it happens. And think about all the times in our lives where we've been given grace. Just think in your mind. And ultimately, the source of that grace is going to come from where? That's going to come from God. And I believe that that, that grace is going to have a profound effect in our lives if we let it. So look with me in that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and look in verse 9. We're here with the Apostle Paul, where he had just been talking about how you know he's the least of the apostles, right? So 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul says, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve what I've been given, but here I stand. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So Paul said that God's grace made him what he is. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And my hope is that each and every one of us here today can say that very thing, that by the grace of God, I am what I am. That, it's, that I've, I, I don't just acknowledge that God's going to give me grace, but I, it, it's had an effect. It's shaped the very being of, of who I am and, and of the choices that I've made have been moved and have been persuaded by God's grace. It, it turned Paul from a persecutor of Christians to a hero of faith and a complete 180. Why? Because Paul understood that the, the blessings and the mercy that we receive from God are not something that we just passively kind of, yeah, they're there, we, we, just, we just receive those. But that when we receive those, it demands something from us. 
It demands a response. If our heart is hardened, if we've hardened our hearts and closed off our hearts to the Word of God, well, then we're not going to see that, will we? But if we have sensitive hearts to the Word of God, we understand who God is, then we know that the gifts of God and that His grace demand a certain response. And if we don't see that, all we're going to show is ingratitude in response to that grace. And that's no good. So then God's grace, it demands a response. And so what we're going to be doing in this lesson is we're going to be looking at our response to God's grace. And why do I think that's necessary? Because I think the feel-good religion of, of today, and, and a lot of the stuff I was exposed to growing up again and again have, have mangled and have torn the idea of God's grace violently into pieces and ripped and turned it to where it's just this, this grace covers everything. It's, we'll just leave it up to the grace of God, people say. And, and you know what? Grace can cover everything. It certainly can. And, and you know what? Just leaving it up to the grace of God, that there's a place for that. But we have to look at where that goes in the whole equation of, of what God has given us and not use it as a flippant response to sin, to allow sin, to give a license to sin, to continue in sin. The religions of the world, they've taken grace and they make it this passive thing that just demands no response. That just gives us an excuse whenever our conscience is kind of bothering us. We just say, oh, oh well, grace will just come in. Right? And you just assume that God's going to take care of it. But the only way we know whether or not God's going to give that grace is on the conditions that He's given. And it's not the case with grace, that it's this passive thing, and it's just this feel-good thing. And it should make us feel good that God's given us grace, don't get me wrong. Our God is merciful, but He's also just, and He does not abide with sin. Look in Romans 6, Romans six fourteen. Romans six fourteen. Paul says, and, and the Lord through Paul, sin will have no dominion over you. Since you're not under law, but under grace. Now, being under grace is not something that people want to hear and think about. They don't want to think about being under anything, really. You know, people say, oh, you know, I respect God, I respect His authority. But that's when that, that excuse comes in of, oh, God's grace will cover everything. Well, God's grace is something that we're to be under. That, that, what does that mean? That means that we're to be subject to that grace. It, it demands something from us. And, and it demands a change in us. And we have to look at that. So what we got to look at is this vital base and this fundamental, yes, it is fundamental, but a vital understanding of God's grace. And, and we have to understand this because we want to follow God and we want to be under His grace, right? So we'll see a number of things together as we examine your response to God's grace. Now, the first thing is a disclaimer. Uh, it's kind of an asterisk point, but I think it needs to be made. And that's, again, that God's grace is not passively just known and believed. It's not just something that we say, oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that, that, that God gives grace. It, it, it's much deeper than that. Think about Pharaoh in Exodus 8. In Exodus chapter 8, Pharaoh, what's the situation there in Exodus 8? You know, the, the people of Israel, it's time for them to be let go. And it's time for them to make their exodus and to, to, to be left from Egypt. They've been enslaved for so long and been under the thumb of Pharaoh. And this is just the way that it's been. And this is the, the life and the customs and the traditions that they've been used to up till this point. But the plagues come out and they roll out one by one and one by one. And next and next and next. And they keep coming. And each time Pharaoh kind of has this same response that we read about in Exodus 8, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. Say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague your country with frogs. Okay, So drop down to verse 8 there. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me. 
and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses says to the Pharaoh, be pleased to command, command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frog shall go away from you and your house and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Most of us are familiar with that phrasing, right? His heart was hardened. I'm sure a lot of us have heard sermon after sermon about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart and have studied about that and understand that. That he wasn't sensitive and he wasn't open to the word of God, but he was being opened up by these plagues. He was having having these situations that were very, very uncomfortable for him and they were kind of forcing him to acknowledge some of the power and the might that God had and, and it was causing him to be kind of, you know, convicted a bit and or, or, or lift or caused to lit a fire under his feet, so to speak, to act and to do something differently than what he'd done before. And so he, he kind of opens up a little bit. And he's like, okay, I'll let your people go. But then what happens next after that? After the frogs all die off, well, he, he changes his mind. No, 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 no. Stay here in Egypt. And then he takes that back. And then another plague. And then the same thing. And then another plague. And then the same thing. And on and on and on. And what can happen, I think, is that we can get caught... If we're, if we're a Christian, or if we're just thinking about being a Christian, well, we can get caught in the same exact cycle, can't we? We feel this conviction. Maybe we're even chastened by the Lord a little bit. Some bad stuff is happening. And then we go, oh, I'm, I need God's grace. I'm, I'm in the valley. I need help. And then we say, well, okay, it, it seems to have turned out. The storm clouds are kind of cleared. And then, then we go just, just right back to having that same hardened heart that we had before. If that's the case, then we haven't learned anything from that grace, right? We're just kind of, we're relying and we're leaning on this to, to just be a license for sin. And I don't think that, that, that the Lord's going to abide with that for very long. Because what happens is, as we slowly discount the grace of God, then we become numb to the giver of that grace. As we slowly, we, we reject the lessons that God is trying to teach us. Well, we just start pushing ourselves and distance ourselves more and more. Till we're like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3 and verse 16. So because you are lukewarm, he says, Jesus says in Revelation 3.16, because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the cycle. That's the cycle that happens when you just repeatedly shove off God's grace and you say, oh, God will give me more time. God will give me, God, God will give me more grace through this. I'll be able to sort it out later. I'll handle that particular sin down the line. I'll wait to be baptized because I'm going to get more and more time. You don't know that. And you distance yourself from God as you push yourself away. And that's not good. If we as God's people refuse to respond to grace and we take it for granted, Jesus says here in Revelation 3.16, we'll reach a point where we're not going to receive it. He's going to spit us out of his mouth. And I don't want that. I don't want us to go through this cycle of sin and delving into that sin. And then uh, we receive grace and mercy from God and when we ask that forgiveness and then our lives seem to clear up and, and that issue kind of, you know, tucks its head for a minute, but we never deal with the root, which is a lack of respect and a lack of love for God, and then it comes back. I don't want that. So we have to look, and we have to examine God's grace and ask, do we really appreciate it? So if we have trouble identifying it, here's a couple things that might help you. Here, just, just a couple things. Let me ask you this. Did you get out of bed this morning? Yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone here did. Uh, you're here. Uh, so there's some grace for you. 
You got out of bed this morning. You woke up. You're alive. Take that first breath when you wake up. Take in those first sights when you wake up. That's grace. There are some people who, they didn't get to wake up this morning. And there are some people who, they didn't get to see today. Right? So that's, there's a blessing in and of itself. Have you, did you experience, a, a like I did today, a beautiful creation? Blue skies. Look in the eyes of people who care about you. I know you did if you're here. That's grace. We've been given so much grace. So then, if that's the case, if you're sitting here right now with time and opportunity to hear the truth of God for the salvation of your soul, then you've been given this much grace up till this point. The opportunity to make it to heaven. And so, what's your response to that? Let's talk about it. You know how, when you're a little kid, and you know somebody, uh, maybe a Tom Palmer, let's say, they kind of they give you a piece of candy, right? And and then you. You just kind of bebop off and start running away, but then you feel a yank on the back of your collar. Well, it's probably mom or dad, right? And they're standing there and they're gesturing to tell Tom, tell him, you know what to say, right? First thing you got to say, thank you, right? That's what you say. Even kids know that. So grace, it should, it should always be met with gratitude. That, that's the, gratitude is the attitude. Put that on a poster or something. All right, that was just off the cuff. Okay, gratitude demands attitude or attitude. See, I messed it up. So, what do you say when someone gives you a gift? What do you say when someone pardons you for committing a wrong to them? Either of those things. Well, you say thank you. Thank you is always in order in that situation. It's the first thing you think you think you do. The first thing you think to do. It's a good start. A sincere thank you is important as well when we know that we've we've received grace from God. Even children learn early on. That when someone is kind to you, that good manners says that you ought to say thank you. Look in Colossians 3, verse 15, please. Look in Colossians 3, verse 15. Letter to the Colossians 3, verse 15. Uh, one of uh, my all-time favorite sermons, I don't want Josh to get a big head, but one of my all-time favorite sermons is Josh's sermon from this passage of Colossians 3, 15. Uh, it was titled, And Be Thankful. Uh, and I think it was like right around uh, Thanksgiving time. Colossians 3, 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body. And then it's kind of its own little sentence right here. And be thankful, right? Be thankful. That's the first part of our response to God's grace. And maybe we can see that there's this greater force at work here. And we kind of understand that. Yeah, okay, I've been given grace. But what's the, what's the, what's, what's the response? Apathy? No. Entitledness? Of course God gave me grace. I'm his child. Of course he did. No. Thankfulness. Gratitude. We didn't earn all this blessing. How could we? And yet, here we stand. Here we sit. Right? Could one perhaps even say, uh, in this from this passage, instead of let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, let the grace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful? Absolutely, I think. And that passage says that Christ is to rule in our hearts. Well, how? Why does Christ get to rule in our hearts? Romans 5, verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8. Because He loves us more than we love ourselves. More than we love ourselves. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. Because he died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his life for us. Shows his love for us, rather. Sorry. Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What grace. And what mercy. To lay down your life for someone. Now, is there a greater service that can be given? Uh, That's not your piece of candy in the foyer. This is a full self-sacrifice. There's not a perfect person in the room right now, and, and that's certainly not including myself. 
So we all have to see ourselves in this verse, in that phrase, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now Christ did this, he went through all this so that we, so that we could be pardoned for our sin. And keep in mind, our sin was the reason that he had to do that in the first place. The nails that were in his hands, that was our our responsibility and our doing. And yet still he hung on the cross for us. Now don't tell me that doesn't elicit an attitude of thankfulness. But if you're really thankful then, if you're really thankful that, that he laid down his life and that while you were still in the crowd yelling crucify, he was, he was looking upon you with love and was willing to walk up the hill of Calvary even when you were at your absolute worst, then, then, then that attitude of thankfulness, well, where does that lead? Well, that doesn't just, that doesn't lead to just, and this is for everyone. This is for, for those of you that have trouble deciding where you're at or, or the pew grippers during the invitation song that you know you need to come forward, but you're not sure or, or something's holding you back. Let me tell you, are you th- if you're th- if we, I just need you to be here. If you're thankful for the cross, you'll do God's will because it's going to produce repentance. Grace is going to demand repentance because if you see that, that the Lord has done this kindness to you, well, then you'll return with as much loving kindness and as much self-sacrifice as you can give. Grace demands repentance. Look in Genesis 39. Look in Genesis 39. Now, Joseph in the Old Testament, he was sold into slavery. And in Genesis 39, eventually, still, by the grace of God, he finds his way to the realm of Egyptian nobility, working as a servant in the house of an Egyptian ruler by the name of Potiphar. Well, smooth sailing till Potiphar's wife kind of develops an eye for Joseph, right? And that causes a bit of tension. And she even wanted to sleep with him. Now, how does Joseph respond to those advances? What's Joseph's response in Genesis 39, 7 through 10? Now, Joseph, in verse 7, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Verse 8, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph, you know, he's probably a young man at this point, actually probably around my age. And we can assume that Potiphar's wife was reasonably attractive, being a noble's wife. So then why, why does, despite her repeated advances, he's able to kind of say no to those things and kind of, kind of keep her away? It's because he wasn't thinking of himself in this. He was thinking about the Lord. He was, he was, yeah, he was thinking about Potiphar. That's important. He didn't want to offend Potiphar because Potiphar had been giving him blessing upon blessing upon blessing. He'd been treating him as an equal even though he was a servant. The only thing he kept back from him was his wife. And he respected that. But deeper than that, he said, I'm not going to sin against the Lord. Why? Because he understood and was thankful that God had given him all the things that he'd been given. God's grace taught him something profound, something that a man of that age, a young man, so, some deep wisdom that, that, that he wouldn't have come up with on his own. But, but, but by the grace of God, he had that. Now, I think we see that lesson echoed again in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans in chapter 6. In Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 6. And, and just like all of us need, the Roman Christians, they needed just a reminder of, of who they were. You know, Paul said, I am what I am, right, in Corinthians. Of, of who they were... In Romans 6, verse 1, as we all do, grace is a challenging thing. It's not meant to ease us in our sinful ways. And he reminds them, what shall we say then, he says? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can he who how can we who died to sin still live in it? So the, Paul just highlights here grace is coexisting with God's justice. It's not opposed to God's justice, as our human minds might think. How can you be gracious and just at the same time? How does that work? God did it. Because he, Christ made justification for all of us. Flip over to Romans 3. Go over to Romans 3 and start in verse 23. We're all familiar with this. Romans 3, just a couple, just back up to chapter 3. So, Christ made justification for all of us, which, again, gracious. That was a gracious act. That's grace. Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's us in that, that passage right there. But, here's us as well, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, listen, key in right here, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our human minds could not have concocted this plan. But the Lord gave us grace while simultaneously giving us justice. Christ came to convict us of our sin so that we could see what God would be willing to do if He were a man and was walking on this earth because He actually did it. He showed us. And He showed us what our response would be. And then we can learn from that. And we can change and we can grow. So what's our response from God? For the sacrifice that he made for our sin. The reason that Jesus was put to death. How would Let me ask you this. How would you react? Okay, if you're in the position of the father and your son's put to death for crimes he didn't commit. You'd want that person dead. Right? It would take so much mercy and so much grace to forgive that individual. But the Lord is both just and the justifier. So while Jesus convicts the world of their imperfection by his example of being perfect, he then also provides the means for our perfection so that we don't have to be tainted with the sins that once drove the nails into the hands of the very justification that we receive. How beautiful is that? And so as a result of that, naturally, we don't run from the cross anymore. We kneel at the cross. That's our response to that. There's no question about it at that point. So if that's if you understand that, that Jesus did that for you, and you're thankful for that, well then naturally you want to be as close to Him as you possibly can. And you want to do things His way from this point. That it provides the all the motivation we need to stop hesitating. To, to repent of that sin that keeps bubbling back up. And to just say, this is it, I'm drawing the line right now when we see the cross. To stop gripping the pew during the invitation song. Confess sin or even be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins. That's all the motivation that we need to turn around and to change. To start trusting and start following Jesus. That's what grace teaches us. That we need to, that we don't, we don't receive that grace and then we run as far as we can from it. But we live in it every day. That's what grace teaches us. That, that, that we turn away from what we want. And we just let we just let God's grace be a hundred percent all the time kind of thing in our lives. Not something that we just go to when we're sad, or that when we're hurting, or when we might have messed up, or that when it's convenient, or when it's Wednesday, or when it's Sunday, or when it's time to pray over the food. But God's grace is there all the time. Passioned, emblazoned, because of that grace that we change. And the ultimate source of that is because we want what He wants for us, not what we have in store for us. 
If we follow our own ways, well, we have death. That's what that Romans 3.23 passage says. And later on in Romans in 6.23. So we want what God wants for us. Right? So we choose that. And, and what does He want for us? He wants for us to be in a right relationship with Him. To be made right, to be made whole, to be made complete, to be His children. The Lord doesn't want us to be separated from Him. He loves us. He's shown us this grace. He's painstakingly put in all this work to give us the Scriptures, to teach us what we ought to do. And He's ultimately got a place prepared for us that's called heaven. And that grace, that, 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 that ultimately, it makes us a Christian. Do you understand that? It's so true. Look at Ephesians 2. Look at Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Now, I know, and we've talked about this up here in the auditorium class. Now, I know that people in, out in the, the religious world today, they take this passage and they make it mean, I don't have to do anything and I can be saved. That's not the case. But there's a profound truth in this passage. And this text, that while it's been misused a lot, let's just focus on what it does teach. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this verse is really simple in what's teaching. Grace, grace is the reason that I can even become a Christian. Because where are we without God's grace and the entire plan of salvation and everything that He's given us? Well, without grace, we're charged to live sinlessly perfect. Our entire lives, never ever stumbling. Even one mistake... And we'd be out. But because of God's grace, He continually provides for us, we have the opportunity to be forgiven. But it, and that's why it's not hopeless, because Paul said to the Ephesians that they had been saved from what? From themselves. From their own folly. From their own ideas about what it means to be, uh, to, to be good. To, from their own ideas about what they thought was right. He, they, from, from their own path, they'd been... Completely walked down the wrong road. All we like sheep had gone astray. But the shepherd set them on the right path by his grace. Now, what, would they have anything to turn to from their own self-will without God's grace? Well, no. There'd be nothing for them to turn to. Because they'd already made that mistake. They'd already separated themselves from God. But he shows them grace. And now, that grace though, it wasn't unconditional. It wasn't just given to, to everyone. It was made available to everyone, yes. But it wasn't just given to just anyone. And it wasn't even given to everyone and everything that believes. James 2, only, even the demons believe. There were plenty of people that they believed in Jesus in, in the New Testament, but they denied Him. Those people weren't in a right relationship with God. Just believing is not sufficient for salvation. Even the demons believe. Why aren't they saved? There's no repentance there. They don't change. They don't do the will of God. But, but when we do the will of God, that's how we accept that gift, let me ask you this. This situation here in the silhouette. I'm hanging by, I'm hanging on a cliff. My feet are kind of slipping on the rocks. And my friend just grabbed my hand. That's the condition my friend has offered me for them to help. Just grab my hand. If I grab their hand, can I get up there on the rock and say, I saved myself? No. Absolutely not. But I had to grab their hand. That's what they want. That's the, that's the condition that they gave me in order for them to give me that grace to help me up. So in the same way, we got to ask, well, well, what did the Ephesians do to take the Lord's hand? I mean, he's a, an invisible force. He's not physical. He's not reaching a physical hand out. So what did they do? Look in the book of Ephesians. I think that'll answer it. Ephesians 4 verse 5. Just flip over a couple pages. Ephesians 4 verse 5. Maybe even one page. What the Ephesians did 
was that they received and accepted that gift. The account's in Acts 19. Uh, look at Ephesians 4, verse 5, though. They had the one baptism that was described later on in that letter that we were just in in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 4, verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one Lord, one faith, and how many baptisms? Just one. So the Ephesians had had this. What is the one baptism that they received? Well, I'm going to put forward to you that it was the exact same baptism in Acts 2, verse 38. Baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. It was the exact same baptism that the Romans received in Romans 6, verse 3 through verse 5. Buried with Christ in that baptism and risen from the waters to walk in newness of life with their sins cleansed, like in Acts 22, verse 16, where the, the Apostle Paul wrote this, who actually was the author of the letter to the Ephesians, told us that baptism was the moment that washed away his sins. So we have to ask, now, was there something special about the water? Was this, was this holy water? No, it was just water. The, water. the water wasn't salvific. No, the water didn't save anybody, right? right? I'm not saying that. Was there something special about the Apostle Paul in Acts 22, 16? That caused him to that caused him to be saved. Was it his was it his works up till that point that God? Oh, I want to save that. Guy. No, no. Paul was killing Christians beforehand. There's nothing special about Paul. He wasn't earning his salvation when he was baptized there in Acts twenty two sixteen. But what did save him? What did save him was God's grace. How's that work? By grace, Ephesians two eight and nine. By grace through faith. That's the condition. Right there. That's the condition in Ephesians 2, verse 8 through, uh, verse 8 through verse 9. By grace through faith. Now, what is that faith? Is that faith a dead faith? Just, just believing that and then stops there. You don't do anything about it. Do you, do you believe that God exists? Well, yeah, sure. Even the demons believe. But faith, biblically, every single time does the right thing. Everything done in faith, biblically, they do what God commands. And we have to look at the, we just gotta look at the Bible. Don't let, again, I always, I'm trying to say this, I'm trying to push this more and more. Don't listen to me. Don't think, oh, this is Cain's ideation, or this is what Cain has chosen to believe. Look past me and, and just listen to the Word of God. Galatians 3, verse 27. Baptism is the moment that one is clothed with Christ. 1 Peter 3, verse, 20, verse 21. Baptism now saves you. How? There's no other way to interpret that passage. Baptism now saves you. So where are you at on this? What's your response when you hear the word of God? Now, maybe you're like Pharaoh. Maybe, maybe you've heard this message before, and maybe you've said, you know what? That is, that is what the Bible says, and, and I need to do that. I really do. And then you almost, during the invitation song, your, your nervous system is going, and you're like, oh, I'm going to do it. This is today's the day. And then you start gripping the pew and start grinding and holding, and then you just kinda, it just kind of peters off and it leaves. Well, then you're like Pharaoh. You know, for a minute, you were a little uncomfortable and, and, and you were even thinking about doing the right thing. But then at the last second, you said, nope, nope, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Then what are you ought to do? God is offering, he's offering grace. And he spelled out in the New Testament the way to accept that grace. Now, some say all you'll have to do is believe. That's not in the Bible. It's just not. It's just not in the Bible. Some say that the way that you respond to grace is through a sinner's prayer and an altar call. That's not in the Bible either. There's not a single record of that in the Bible. Some say sanctification rites. And it's a gradual process of doing these rites and rituals. And then eventually you just kind of work your way up to it. No. No. That's not in the Bible. What is in the New Testament is this passage. 
that if you want to live with Christ, you have to be willing to die with Him. Look at these principles. Are they, is this biblical? Have I preached a biblical lesson? I'm asking you that. If grace is going to be met with gratitude, and real gratitude leads to repentance, to changing your ways, and grace, and you believe grace is what makes you into a Christian, and you know that you've not done the conditional act to receive that grace, then can you really even say that you're thankful for God? No, you can't. You can't say that. And I hate that. And I'm not saying that to come down on anybody. But I want for us to all see what God has done for our lives. Look Romans 6, verse 1 through 14. Again, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. We, we, we know that the old person who, you know, they loved that sip of alcohol. We know that the old person who, they engaged in, in all kinds of immorality, all kinds of physical lusts and things of that nature. We know that that person has been put to death. We know that, that, that the person who's been taken in false religion, that that person's been put to death. We know that the pew gripper, the apathetic, the sitting on the fence, that person has been put to death when we have received that baptism and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. But if not, you're not in this passage in this part. You're not united with Jesus. And you have to notice that. So, But look here. Look here. Here's what you could have. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to live with Jesus? We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but grace. This this grace, it can remove the, the smallest white lie from your life all the way up to something as brutal as murdering Christians professionally. Do you want that grace? Do you have that grace? Are you abiding in it right now? Now's your time to act. I'm going to be standing right here. All you got to do is come forward. All you got to do is render obedience to God. It, it, it is the best decision you'll ever make in your life. I'll be available. And I know everyone else here will support that decision as we stand. And as we sing.